My name is Brian. I'm so glad you're here this morning. Uh, we've been in the midst of this sermon series on the Beatitudes, and that's the, the first, uh, first part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. And uh, so far we've looked at the first three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So when we think about the Sermon on the Mount, you know, so often we think, well, um, you know, if, if people just learn to do what Jesus is saying here, then, uh, you know, the world's going to be a much better place. And, and that's totally true. But that's kind of missing the point. Jesus is not saying, you need to try hard to be poor in spirit so that you can earn your place in the kingdom of heaven. And he's, he's not saying, you've you got to go try hard to mourn so then you can be comforted. That, the, the Beatitudes, they're not goals, is the point. They're, they're, they're glimpses of what the kingdom is like. It's a very big difference here. So Jesus is not giving good advice. He's proclaiming gospel, which literally means good news. The Beatitudes, they're, they're glimpses of what life is like in heaven when, when God is reigning. So he's saying here, this is what happens when God is king. This is what life that God intends looks like. And then in the next chapter, so you, you see ahead where we're going, the next chapter, he's going to teach us when we pray, that we're supposed to pray that it's like this on earth that it is in heaven. It's, meaning, those who are following Jesus... They're supposed to begin living their lives as if Jesus is king here and now. So today we're going to look at the fourth beatitude, uh, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst. Pretty much uh, our, our basis of physical need, right? You know, I've lost track how many times I've gone down to Honduras over the years. I've, gone, I've, I've stopped counting at two dozen. I, I really don't even know how many times I've been down to Honduras. But we work, our church works with mountain villages, families in the mountain villages in Honduras. And we start with, like, the basic sanitation and, you know, water, agriculture. And usually we, they're subsistence farmers, right? And they don't even understand, a lot of times, planting and weeding. They don't need to. They just kind of walk out in the forest and pick whatever they, they want, whatever fruit they can find, and that's what they live off of. So we generally work with the same village for, for a couple years, and we start with basic water projects, and then we work with latrines, and then we help them build their own homes, and we eventually teach them, the goal is how to farm, and then we want to really teach them to be agricultural entrepreneurs is, is, is the real goal. And I remember one of my first trips down there, there was a woman who heard that we were in this village, and she walked miles through the mountains to, to, to get to us, and they brought... She brought her sick little baby girl to us. She thought that we were a medical brigade, which none of us had any medical training, but her, her diarrhea was so bad that this woman was scared the baby would die. And what's kind of a nuisance for us, you know, it really can mean life or death down there. Like I said, we didn't have any medical training at all, but we gave the baby the, probably the first clean water that baby had ever had. I remember we kind of crushed up some Pepto-Bismol 
uh, tabs and stuck them in there. And I, her baby got better. But I learned a lot about water that day. That baby's mom had been giving her what she knew was contaminated water, is the point. She knew it. But her baby had to have water. That was the only thing that was available. There was no other option. The, the point, there, this is, thirst is like one of the most basic human needs that we have. You've got to drink water. Can you imagine your baby being so thirsty that you, you give that baby dirty water knowing that it's going to make her sick, but you, you got nothing else to give her? Nothing else is going to satisfy that physical need. Serious thirst, serious hunger, they're powerful realities that we really don't get in our world, but they really did get it back in Jesus' world. Jesus did not say, blessed are those who live righteously and maintain a righteous lifestyle. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's a big difference. He's talking about the need, a basic need for righteousness, a desire for righteousness, not the arrival of righteousness that he's talking about. And, and there's a big difference here. Blessed are those who continue this consistent, constant, relentless pursuit, this drive toward righteousness. They're going to be filled. Later on in Matthew, Jesus gives a couple parables in um, chapter 13 that just drive this home perfectly. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field when someone found and hid. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Then he follows it up with another. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had. And he bought it. You know, Jesus' point is not that the kingdom is like this treasure or the kingdom is like those pearls. The point is the desire for the treasure. The, the need for the pearls drove this man and the merchant to trade everything, give everything up, all they had, for the pearl and the treasure. The blessed one is the one who hungers, who thirsts for righteousness. So what is righteousness? So there's a 51-page, single-spaced article in this book alone on the Greek word behind righteousness, dikaiosune. And, and I, my goal is not to bore anyone. I didn't even want to bore myself. I looked at it, and I, you know, back in school, I circled it, and I underlined it and everything, but now it's like, I'm not going to read it. I've been there. I've done that. It's one of the most complicated words in the entire New Testament. And it can just as easily be translated justice as righteousness, dikaiosune. And, and the point, and I remember, <laughs> I remember my Greek professor, we, we spent weeks on this. The English language differentiates between righteousness and justice. We have two different words for that, but in the New Testament, it's the same thing. What is the difference between righteousness 
and justice. In our world, we think of justice as more like a forensic term, like it's a legal thing. I mean, here's a line, and your behavior is either on the right side of that line or the wrong side of that line, depending on where you are on, in the line. That's the issue. But righteousness, if you think about it, it's more relational. What do I mean? It's not about being right or wrong. It's more about being in right relationship with someone. I desire to be right with God. We really had a problem, but they made it right. And we're okay now. Big difference, justice and righteousness. Different concepts in English, but let me say the Greek word dikaiosune, Hebrew word sedek, behind that, it, it, they don't really separate that. And if we're going to understand this, we do need to spend a couple minutes on it, because there is a reason why so much of the Bible is about being in right relationship with God. And then restoring our relationship when it gets broken. So in the Old Testament, Israel was given the law, right? So they would, they'd know how to be in right relationship with God was the point of the law. If you follow the law, you're, you're in right relationship. It's based on your behavior. Breaking the law was called a sin. But the deeper, deeper, deeper issue, it wasn't the transgression. It wasn't the judicial aspect of breaking the law that was the issue. The real issue of sin was damage in the relationship. Not being in right relationship, that was the bigger issue. So God gave cl very, very clear instructions on how the relationship could be restored when it was damaged. Because being in right relationship with God and neighbor, that's the goal. In the Old Testament, it, it's, it's really, the law is all about relationship. Being in right relationship. The first half of the Ten Commandments are a path to be in right relationship with God. The second half of the Ten Commandments are about being in right relationship with other humans. I mean, right relationship with God. Have no other gods before me. Don't worship idols. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But then the second half are about being in right relationship with humans. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal, don't bear false witness, and don't covet, which means don't want what your neighbor has. So if you remember when Jesus was asked which of the commandments was the greatest, he just sifted those ten down to two when he said love God and love neighbor, right? He just made it really easy. So part of righteousness is keeping the commandments. That's the judicial, that's the justice aspect, following the law. But the deeper issue is the relational, is the point. That's the why you follow the law. Because this is a path to being in right relationship with God and with others. So if you break the law, it means your relationship with God or your relationship with other people has been damaged. And see, the, the point, the law was a gift, not the judicial aspect but it was the relational aspect of righteousness. The law was a path to being in right relationship. That is the goal. We're human. We're going to break the law. It's the human condition. So when Jesus says in 5-6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, he's describing someone 
who desires, who, their desire to be in right relationship with God is like a person who's starving. Or a thirsty person who just, they just have to have some water. It's what is necessary to live. And the good news behind that, the gospel, is that they will be filled. But the issue isn't whether or not they've arrived at being righteous. It's the desire. It's the yearning to be righteousness. Righteous. Because our relationship with God, it's it's all about God's grace. It's not something that we do. God and God alone is the one who satisfies. This is amazing grace, right? The hunger, the thirst for righteousness, it's the desire to love God, to love God's will with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. To the point that our need is only going to be satisfied by being in right relationship with God. True communion, longing to know God and to do God's will. So the first four Beatitudes, they're all about human need. It's someone who is lacking in spirit, remember the first one, or happiness, someone lacking in power, and now someone who lacking in righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, they're lacking. There's just the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are mourning. They'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They will be inherit the earth. And, and blessed are those who hunger, who thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So Jesus just pronounces categories of people in need as being blessed. And I really thought about this this week so much, and and, and it strikes me that the first three of these Beatitudes, they're not things that can ever be goals for us. You can't really say, I'm going to set a goal next week, and I'm going to work so hard at being poor in spirit by the end of the week. Right? That doesn't work. And you can't really, I'm going to pray that I can mourn. I think desiring to be meek is kind of an attainable goal, but, but I, I think it's kind of missing Jesus' point, honestly. It's taken it somewhere he really didn't mean to go. These are not demands of behavior that Jesus is setting upon us, is the point. He's not saying, you need to strive to be poor in spirit. You need to mourn. You need to, you know, be meek if you want to follow me. The first three Beatitudes are about God's mercy for us in the midst of our need. That's what it's about. And really, they're a promise of help for those who can't help themselves. And that's grace. You know, it always goes back to grace, right? Grace means God helps us when we need help. Simply because we need help. Not because we have met some specific condition. But the fourth beatitude is very different. Because a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, I'll tell you, that is something we need to pray that God stokes in our hearts. There's a shift in the beatitudes right here. The first three are about our weakness. But to hunger and to thirst for righteousness is the hunger and thirst for becoming a doer of God's will. 
It means to yearn to be in right relationship with God, but also to yearn to have right conduct as a child of God. Because righteousness is about relationship and behavior, is the point. You know, Jesus can develop this throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll warn you, the bar he's going to set in the Sermon on the Mount is going to seem so high that we have no hope of ever living out his sermon. So I don't think it's just me that struggles with passages like, you have heard it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other, and if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you. Do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. I mean, his bar is going to be so high. Which is why getting this beatitude, I think, is so critical. And remembering, this is a glimpse of what life is like when God is king. It's a glimpse of life in the kingdom. And we're supposed to pray that this is what it's like on earth. And we're supposed to hunger for that. And we're supposed to thirst for that. So if you read the Sermon on the Mount and you hear love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and you just don't want to, you know, you want to throw up your hands and say, I can't do that. You need to remember Jesus does not say, blessed are the righteous. He said, blessed are those who are starved and empty for righteousness that they yearn for. Rather than throw up your hands and drop to your knees, you know, you need to pray, God, please, instill a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in my heart to the point that pursuing what you desire of me is the greatest driving facet in everything in my existence. I said it a minute ago, but the first three Beatitudes they're not the type of thing that, you know, we pray for God to do in our lives. But we all have to pray, God, develop this hunger in my heart. Develop a thirst in my heart for righteousness. What do you think a righteous person would actually look like? Matthew gives us an example, and it's one you all know really well. Very early in the gospel, I want to share with you Matthew 1, 18 and 19. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a righteous man, unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. Now, really believe Joseph is our example of this beatitude. He starts out telling us he's a righteous man. But as you walk through the story, I mean, that, that righteous was a title back then. And it meant Joseph had spent his entire lifetime just studying and learning, observing the Torah, the law of Moses. And he followed the laws, and he followed the customs. He did everything right. He had a black belt in the behavior side. Earning the title righteous man. I mean, that, that, was, that was the goal back then. He spent his entire life 
everything he had pursuing that title. It was his reputation. And it was a title and a reputation you could lose in a second. And that's what he faced. In his world, a pregnancy scandal before marriage would be the end of that title. It would end his reputation. Joseph knew he was not the father, but he didn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace. And so it says, Matthew says, he, he planned to dismiss her quietly. You know, it's one of those short little verses that's just so, so packed. There's like, a, you know, a trilogy right there, I'm sure. Joseph, he, he could obey the law, tell people that Mary was unfaithful to him. His reputation as a righteous man would be set. He could walk away, but he also knew that would mean, could mean death for Mary. Or he could kiss his reputation goodbye, and he could take this pregnant girl as his wife, implicitly saying, yeah, the child's mine. He chose a private divorce. I just think this is fascinating. Because it was really the hardest option of all of them for Joseph. It meant not only would he take the blame, but he'd also take the guilt on himself of her pregnancy. What do I mean? Private divorce. Mary would have to fend for herself, but she wouldn't be stoned to death because people would assume that Joseph got her pregnant and then just walked away, left her. Meaning he would take the blame at the cost of his reputation as a righteous man. But Joseph felt this was the right thing to do. In his awesome book, awesome book, um, Jesus Creed, Scott McKnight, he, he, he talks about Joseph and his decision, and, and he says it's the struggle between reputation and identity. And I love how he puts this. He says, our reputation, which is what others think of us, is not as important as our identity, who we really are. And he said, spiritual formation begins when we untangle reputation and identity, and when what God thinks of us is more important than what we think of ourselves or what others think of us. If you're going to follow Jesus... You're going to hit a wall eventually. It's going to come. Between what God wants of you and what others want of you. And when you're in the fire like that, you learn pretty quick, you know, is what God thinks of me more important than what other people think of me? This is about character. About doing the right thing even when that decision is going to be incredibly un unpopular, at the very least, right? And it might even ruin life as you know it for Joseph. Because I bet the day that Mary showed up and told Joseph what was going on, he thought, this is the single worst day of my life. But at that same moment, Joseph, I'm sure he was devastated. But God was at work in ways that Joseph never could have imagined, right? I mean, right smack in the midst of the source of Joseph's anxiety, of his, you know, his fear, God was doing the greatest work he'd ever done since the beginning of creation. 
That's how God works. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, God, God takes our pain and our disappointment and our heartache, and, and he's able to use it in ways that we would never, ever, ever foresee. And the journeys that we don't want to take and the journeys that we never, ever planned, they're usually the ones that define our lives and bring beauty that we, we, we never would have imagined possible. That's how God works. Our job is to pray that we hunger and we thirst for this, for righteousness. And, and then we just trust God to take care of the other part, because he will. But like Joseph, you know, I, I love, God sends, what, an angel in a dream? Do you remember the story? Joseph, do not be afraid. We heard it, like, you know, 45 times in one week. Do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. The child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son. You're to name him Jesus. He'll save people from their sin. Because of his hunger and his thirst for righteousness, Joseph threw away his reputation with other men. And he stuck to his identity as a child of God. And don't think for a minute that wouldn't have come for a cost. Not only did Joseph, you know, choose to raise a child on his own, he claimed the child was his. I mean, the, the, the gossips would have just... Raising a child on his own was a very different thing than claiming the child was his. Joseph took ownership of the scandalous pregnancy because he really did hunger and thirst for righteousness, not in namesake, not legally, but relationally. Because when God calls, jo Joseph followed. The cost didn't even matter. Because what God wanted him to do was what Joseph, and this is what he hungered for. This is what he thirsted for. Saying yes was the beginning of a journey Joseph, he could not have imagined. But that's what happens when you hunger and you thirst for righteousness. What's more important? What others think? What do you hunger for? You pray with me, Lord. We ask that you just instill in our hearts a hunger and a thirst be in right relationship with you, to pursue your will regardless of the cost. We thank you for your grace which goes ahead, calls us, and in the midst of our need, fills and satisfies. In your son's name we pray.